Welcome to Coffee and Change. I'm Bill Kirst. As a business professional, a U.S. veteran, a lifelong learner, and an active listener, I help others navigate, understand, and adapt to our ever-changing workplace and world. As a third culture kid, I call many places home. Presently, Seattle is where I explore my creativity through the power of words and images. In this podcast, we journey with our guests, gaining knowledge and inspiration from their stories. There's a word in the Irish language that holds great reverence and importance in Celtic culture. While I'm sure my pronunciation will not do it justice, my guest on this episode certainly does. That word is Seanachie, and it means storyteller. Storytelling is a part of the Irish DNA, and it comes to life in the words and wisdom of a man you'll meet in this next hour. That man is Irvin Nugent. Irvin originally hails from the town of Ballamagory in Northern Ireland where he grew up as a child of the Troubles. His tales of adversity, resilience, rebuilding, and healing laid the foundation for a great storytelling and wisdom sharing, all that was collected in a book he published in September of 2020. Titled Leadership Lessons from the Pub, I read this book cover to cover one afternoon and couldn't stop thinking about the undiscovered commonalities of our human journeys. I was honored to have Irvin join me for a nourishing and generous conversation that felt a little bit like two old friends meeting up after a long time away. You can learn more about Irvin's work, his writings, and wisdom at IrvinNugent.com. For now, enjoy the conversation. storytellers. So <laughs> I'm hoping this is very much uh, almost like pulling up a, a stool at the pub and having a conversation. Um, so I appreciate the uh, the opportunity to chat with you. Um, and thank, I mean, thank Colin for making the recommendation. Uh, he's, he's a pretty amazing human being on this planet. So I'm glad that he is the bridge between the two of us. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. And dear friend. Yeah. And you both, you both went to the Georgetown program. I'm actually a Georgetown grad as well. Yeah. Yeah. Although we didn't know each other. Um, Colin was a few years ahead of me. And then I met Colin through a mutual friend of ours, Joni Rufo. And uh, yeah, so then that's kind of how we connected. So yeah. Yeah, no, he's a, he's a great individual. And I know that uh, I had him on the podcast a few, a few episodes back and immediately after he said, Oh, you've got to talk to a few people. Um, and top of the list was, was you. So I'm honored. It's a real, it's a real honor and gift to get to talk to you today. I will tell you, I've got the book with me and in oh, true wow. fashion, I've got notes. Oh dear. <laughs> um, not that I'm really going to quote stuff, but I yeah. will tell you that um, I can say in all sincerity, reading this book was like, was like coming home. Oh, wow. It was really like, I don't, I don't know if everybody has the same reaction to it, but I can tell you that um, 
it was an afternoon of me reading it cover to cover and it was like coming home. Um, mm. There was a lot that really resonated with me. There's a lot that we have in common um, and it was good for the heart mm. and I'm recommending it and giving it to as many people as I can. Um, yeah. It's not a book that I feel you can just hand them without sort of the preface as to the why. Yeah. Um, and so I'm, I'm tailoring those experiences a little bit, but I just want to start off by saying thank you for writing this book and sharing the story. No, um, I'm really glad it found its way to me. Me too. Yeah. Yeah. It was, uh, it was, a, there's an interesting background to the story because that's not the book I was writing. Okay. And, uh, I was actually writing something else. And, uh, I, I said, you know, I'm going to go to Ireland and just to, you know, it was, like, it was, you know, basically, um, using some Irish concepts and I arrived in Dublin and I just had this overwhelming feeling in my heart that I needed to revisit my childhood and I wasn't planning. So yeah. literally getting off the plane, I wiped out the itinerary and I just played it by ear, followed the heart. And that's the book that came out. It was kind of, you know, this is what I need to write about. So it's really, um, I mean, those, those that will read it, those that have read it will know it's, it's really, it's a powerful tale. Um, and I think it's interesting because, you know, some of the things we, we obviously share in common uh, above and beyond some of our professional interests. Um, you know, I come from a long line of Irish tribe, um, certainly not, uh, not uh, as close to, you know, the parts of Ireland, but um, I spent many summers as a, as a child on the West coast of, of Ireland. In oh, County I didn't know Clare. that. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. Um, about, I'd say what, about maybe 300 kilometers South of where, um, Ballymagory. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was in an area yeah. called Ballyvaughan, um, yeah. uh, sort of south of Galway. And so we spent uh, a number of summers in Ballyvaughan and then a town called Oran Moor, mm -hmm. um, just on the coast there. And, um, you know, on both sides of the family, um, you know, there's, there's Irish lineage. And it was really an amazing opportunity to go back and kind of understand and stand on the land where you come from. Mm -hmm. And my youngest brother, um, the youngest of six, um, this past, well, I want to say it was 2019. It was before the pandemic. He did a, <coughs> an Irish pilgrimage, mm. an ancestry pilgrimage, actually. Mm. Um, and it has transformed and, and really changed the, the, the lives of our family um, by him going back to the original places and standing mm -hmm. there and um, honoring frankly, yeah. um, where we came from. And it, and it kind of, um, I think part of your story really, really stood out to me. I think, you know, I think back to this, the beginnings of the story in Ballymagory and you being a six-year-old. Um, and if it's okay with you, I'd like to read just a portion of the sure. beginning of it. Cause it, it's yeah. so powerful to me. I think I was sharing with my godmother recently, um, that the opening of this book, um, really transplants the reader into a moment of, um, you know, I think familial bond, but also the power and um, the 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 enormity of trauma, mm -hmm. um, and I think how much we carry it with us. So, um, if it's okay, I'll just start it sure. kind of you know on page one yep. of the book. But yep. um, you're six years old at this point. You're you're retelling um, what happened, and um, I'll start it by the part where it says. Two masked Irish Republican Army gunmen stormed into the pub. One of them gathered all the customers and held them at gunpoint against the wall. The other went to the counter, placed a firebomb on top of it, and lit the fuse. The gunman looked at Brian. Brian is your father. Mm -hmm. 
and said, you've five minutes to clear the place before this goes off. If any of you tries to move it, it'll explode. After the gunman left, the customers fled out of the front doors. Brian, your father, the barkeep, the pub owner, ran up the back of the stairs to warn Teresa, your mother, and their daughters, who were still chatting in the living room. Finally, he ran to the bedroom of his sleeping six-year-old son. That's you. Brian grabbed his son from the bed, ran out of the bedroom door, down the stairs, out the side door, and across the street. He was relieved to see that Teresa and his daughters already made it out safely. Just then, an explosion so terrible and powerful erupted. The roof lifted from the building. Fire instantaneously spread throughout the pub and the home. Brian, Teresa, and their children watched as everything they owned went up in flames before their very eyes. Still clinging tightly to his son, Brian raised a clenched fist in defiance. From deep within himself, he cried, watch me build again. Brian was my father, and I still remember that clenched fist. I appreciate you letting me read that uh, first portion of your book. Um, from that clenched fist, I was clenched in this story from that page to the very end. Um, so I just, I would love to just, you know, when you think back to going back to Ireland, as you said, that was not necessarily your intention to sort of revisit and relive um, this history yeah. and this beginning. Um, talk a little bit about that. Um, you know, in that same trip, there was a really interesting meeting that happened. My, both my parents are deceased and um, I have four sisters. And so um, when I arrived in Ireland, I was writing a different book that would have brought up some stories, but not necessarily this. Mm -hmm. And um, and so going back, the, the building is still there. It's a different building. And, um, you know, I'm 54 now. And it is amazing how, first of all, the power of, of that moment mm -hmm. and the uncovering of the moment. And in one way, it's the, the beauty of the human person that we can protect ourselves, mm -hmm. that we can move on. It's, it's, it's truly wondrous. And yet how um, much there is to explore that we don't get a chance to do that. Right. And uh, on my last night of the trip, I had my sisters in a dinner table and I was telling them around that. And we, 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 we came to an insight that surprised us. And that was, we had never collectively talked about that night. Wow. We, I we can had feel moved. the gravity of that. Yeah. And, um, we had moved on. Mm -hmm. And we survived. And part of survival was to fix in the future. And, um, and it was amazing because we, we all had different parts of the story. And even after all these years, we remember, we mean the, the precision of memory was amazing, which normally doesn't happen, but it, mm -hmm. it did. And, um, and, and what was amazing about that conversation was everyone's trauma was a little different right and their experience what 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 traumatized them was very different mm -hmm. and like for example one of my older sisters we 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 were just separated that night and put in different homes and for her 
the the pain of that evening and then having to sleep in a stranger's house was what she remembered the most, you know? So, uh, and then for my other sister remembered um, that my mother kind of disappeared for three days. And uh, what we later find out was that my mother had been pregnant and miscarried. Oh, and, wow. Um, and uh, didn't want to be around. So, you know, her pain was, was very much around my mother. Mm. So, in many ways, it it, uh, it opened uh, an opportunity to step into a moment of great pain, um, unhealed in many ways, and appreciate um, that here we were, you know, um, almost fifty years later together, uh, we'd we'd survived and had a bond that was unique. And yet, a part of us had never been revealed to each other. Yeah, I, I so appreciate you sharing that because what's really, what's really pronounced to me is, in your story and reading the book, there's so much in between the lines, right? Yeah. And that what you're describing now is exactly what I pulled from this book. Is the, yes, it's a it's a book on leadership lessons from the pub, and we're going to talk a little bit about those portions. But there was so I think why this book was such a coming home to me was what you're talking about, which is mm -hmm. the the collective processing of mm -hmm. of emotion and grief, and and emotions don't um, when emotions don't move um, when they're not seen, when they're not honored, when they're not um, respected spoken um tough things happen um i think to people and it's the same in organizations as we know mm -hmm. um, as we're kind of experiencing on a grand scale in the world right now but i so appreciate you sharing that the, the power of a collective revisiting of grief and how each sibling had their own unique perspective mm -hmm. and their own their own pinpoint of what mm -hmm. was most painful and traumatic about that moment. Mm -hmm. I imagine, you know, you talk about being a child of the troubles and that, that term may, maybe everybody doesn't know. Um, can you tell us a little bit about, you know, child of the troubles, what that means? Um, so people understand and, and, and then maybe expand upon this, this concept of moving through the world as a child of the troubles and the opportunities to revisit what that means. Yeah, um, so in the mid to late 60s in Northern Ireland, there um, was a, um, a boiling up of the tensions that had been there for hundreds of years, which pitted you know, two communities, a Protestant and a Catholic community for, for want of labels. And in many ways, the civil rights movement in the U.S. had kind of added new fire to this. And um, one of the ways that that came out was with violent dissent. And so you had a reemergence of the Irish Republican Army who were um, fighting for Irish independence and against the social and economic discrimination. And then um, uh, Protestant paramilitaries on the other side, UDF, et cetera, in response to that. And so in the late 60s, um, this turned violent. Um, in the late 60s and early 70s, um, the, the, I suppose the focus of the IRA was to blow the economic life out of Ireland, Northern Ireland. And so thus, you know, why would 
they bomb a pub or something, you know, part of that was. And with any terrorism, you know, it, its sole focus is to instill fear. And so people who were born in those years are called the children of the troubles. Um, and uh, I was born in 67. And uh, basically it, it is the backdrop to growing up. Yeah. Um, I grew up, I, I realize it now, I grew up in constant fear. There wasn't a moment of leaving the house that I didn't think about what might happen. Um, anytime we went shopping, um, our, our bags were searched. Um, anytime we went to the town on a weekend, there would be one bomb scare. It might not be a bomb, but there would be a bomb scare that we had to clear. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I had a few other instances of growing up of, of bombs going off near our school, of shootings, et cetera. So this really was a, a constant anxiety of, of, and, you know, I think I've begun to appreciate as I get older, what that's meant in my life. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we've just celebrated, um, you know, the 20th anniversary of 9-11. Yeah. And I remember my reaction to that, which was so unusual, but knowing my background, it wasn't. So, you know, I had just returned from the States the day before, and I was tired and I actually missed it live. And I'd gone into work and I saw this collective horror, you know, people grieving and, and, and anxious and sad. And, and my instant, my, my instinctual reaction to that was to get, get on with it. Yeah. There's no time. There is no yeah. time to wallow. And I, in fact, in many ways, I felt disconnected from the grief around me. I, I couldn't enter into it. And, and as I reflect on that, I think, you know, that's part of just Child of the Troubles. We, it's so ingrained that, 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 that you get up and you continue, you know, and part of that is um, that we don't have time to, to wallow in the, in the grief or the trauma. It, there'll come a time for that. But now, today, the most important thing is to walk straight ahead and to get on with life. And so there's benefits of that that has benefited me greatly, but there's a dark side to it as well. Yeah. And I think in some ways, I'm curious your thoughts on this, Urban, like some of that feels so stitched into the Irish fabric. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I think I think about grief and, you know, this past year, um, my family lost, uh, you know, my mother passed unexpectedly. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the power of a matriarch in a a big Irish family. And um, to be in the space of um, during the pandemic and um, sort of in the height of the pandemic for many people who lost a loved one, you know, you, you, we couldn't have these funerary arrangements. Mm-hmm. We couldn't have the ceremonies, the rituals. Um, and, it, and it really left us in a place where, as you said, what do you reach for? You reach for, well, you've got to keep going. Yeah. Um, and much of the grief I think was frozen in time. Um, and in some, in some fashion, you know, I, I think we reach back into our ancestry and we say, well, the ancestors would have kept going, right? The ancestors, you've got to put a food on the table. You've got to keep going. You've, you know, through so much that they had been through, um, discrimination, famine, violence, all of this, right. That's in our DNA. It's yeah. in your DNA, yeah. um, and it's closer to your sort of toolkit than you realize. Um, yeah. And I think what's really interesting is the pandemic and things like the 20th anniversary of 9-11, and all of these things have brought a lot of this stuff forward. Yeah. Um, 
And what I yeah. find so powerful is is people don't process it. Sorry, yeah. go ahead. No, I was going to say, Bill, I just, I mean, and then when it surfaces, it comes out in some of the most unusual places. Yeah. And, and uh, uh, so like two weeks ago, um, for me, uh, uh, a huge piece of news was that ABBA yes. were reuniting after 40 years. And yeah. I listened to the song and all of a sudden I had this extraordinary emotional response to it. I cried. I literally sobbed. And I said, this is disproportionate. I mean, I know this is big news, but this is slightly disproportionate. And then the whole thing is, ABBA were safety for me. So I grew up with this, this mess around me, this society that had turned tribal and had broken up. And here was this music of hope, this music that it would work out. And it just, it brought me back to my childhood and and just the soothing tones and all of a sudden boom this amazing outpouring of grief again i could totally relate i had nearly the same experience mm. um i listened to it and i was transported back to the safety of being the child in the back seat of a car mm. the tape was on mm -hmm. you were likely going to some pool or something during the summer we always had music always had music on in our house. I mean, you talk about this as well in your story. Um, I mean, the, the amount that music can heal. Yeah. And I had the same exact experience. And it was really interesting when I started seeing all the stuff about the, you know, ABBA 40 years later, they're recording again, and it came up on social media. I actually had one of these moments where I said, I'm not ready to click this link. Hmm. Like, I don't think people realize the portal it's going to take me into. Yeah. Um, and I knew, I knew that was going to happen. So I intentionally was able to finish up what I needed to for mm -hmm. a portion of that day, moved to a separate computer, said, okay, like hit play and just prepare for what happens. And I too had this emotional release. And for me, I think it's because my parents, uh, even as Americans, they lived in Europe in the seventies. Um, and Again, interestingly enough, what was happening in Europe, right? It was it was terrorist playground there yeah. as well in places yeah. like Italy and yeah. um, and music was so cornerstone in our family for no matter what is happening in the world, you put on that record, you get lost in that record, you laugh, you cry, you sing it again, you play it again, and ABBA was that for us. It was one mm. of the few things that my parents actually agreed on, <laughs> music taste-wise. <laughs> uh, my mom was very much, um, you know, we, we even at one point had an 8-track in our car. Mm. Uh, for people that don't know what an 8-track is, you should go look <laughs> that up. But uh, we had an 8-track in our car. Um, mm. And they, you know, there were very few things that my dad was, like, okay with. But ABBA was one of them. Mm. And so... We think, you know, we think back to those moments when everybody was happy, everybody was laughing, we were all singing along. Um, it really didn't matter what was happening in the world around us. We had this moment, we had this little yeah. capsule of happiness. And that's what came up, came up for me when yeah. I played that song just a yeah. few weeks ago. Yeah. Um, and now I'm eagerly waiting for the November release. Oh, can't wait. Yeah, yeah. right? <laughs> And, and this is a concert in London, which may have to, I just may have to go there. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. But yeah. you also talk about, you know, there's a couple other things while we're on the topic of music, you know, um, the song, the town I love so well, um, mm -hmm. you know, uh, I think, I think about 
you, you mentioned Phil Coulter in the book. Um, Phil Coulter is a staple, staple name in my, in my household, uh, my current household and the household I grew up in. Um, and for, for, for me, it's interesting because I remember hearing these songs the first time with relatives and the songs themselves are absolutely beautiful. And this may not necessarily make sense to some people, but I, but I know you'll understand what I mean. I heard the songs through the eyes of the people mm. who played it for me. Do you know what I mean by that? Yeah, I absolutely yeah. know what you mean. Yeah. Um, and I remember one of my fondest memories of being able to take my parents to a concert in Alexandria, Virginia at the Birchmere. You probably know it. Yeah. Um, the High Kings came to town. Mm. And um, I know a lot of Irish people kind of laugh at the High Kings and, you know, but they do, they do an, an incredible uh, concert. And I remember how much it meant to me to take my parents to this concert and to watch my mom in an emotional state, listen to the song, The Town I Love So Well, because it meant so much to her Um, and to have, you know, these beautiful voices singing it in a way. And, and I watched again as an adult, right? I watched the same pair of eyes, but different tears coming from the pairs of eyes and knowing that I was able to sort of create that moment and invite them to the Birchmere for that is, is one of my, one of my favorite memories um, that still sits with me. And now I can't, you know, I can't listen to any of these songs without thinking of my mom and and family. Um, Music plays such a strong, role in our lives that's still the case oh totally um i mean i was just writing about this actually the other week you know about why is it that music can touch your emotion you know and, and thankfully with some you know neuroscience research we're beginning to understand <laughs> it like it's music is like it's like sex chocolate and gambling it lights up the same parts of our brain and mm-hmm. and that's certainly the the emotional part the amygdala and other parts of our brain just go crazy with it but you know for me you know, growing up in like in Northern Ireland, there was so many unsaid conversations. Yes. And at times trauma is so much, we just don't talk about it. Mm-hmm. Because why would you? Why would you lift the lid off this? And the nearest we got to a conversation at times was music. Yeah. And it was someone else using words that were too painful for us to say. Mm-hmm. And it touched, and we sat there in silence listening to it as tears rolled down our eyes. And, and there, there was, it was like almost like this, this, at times the pain, but the soothing tones of the music as well. And so music was, was replacing some of those missing conversations. Mm-hmm. Very, very true. I think, I think in so many ways, the lyrics of mm-hmm. songs the stanzas of poetry yeah. um, took that took that place because yeah. you're right. There's a lot that's unsaid um, because there's sort of this unspoken agreement that we don't yeah. ruffle, right? Yeah. We don't revisit yeah. the trauma. We don't talk about the things we're ashamed of. We don't talk about the struggles that people had, um, despite the fact that those are all the things that make us the resilient human being leader that we are and and i think some of that's changing i think the pandemic has changed Mm -hmm. a lot of that has really brought conversations you know the fact that the conversation around mental health and mental wellness is regularly talked about in the workplace now is kind of mind-blowing to me um 
I think it's wonderful. I think we have a lot of work to do, but it's such a different way of showing up. And I'm still, I, I'm still fighting those Irish demons, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, and I think, I think there, there are, you know, you also talk about um, another, again, another brilliant mind and huge heart who really has influenced me um, most of my adult life, John O'Donohue. Mm. And I think so much about um, how he, as, as a poet, as a mm. priest, as a man of faith, um, his story is pretty fascinating. And you also uh, were a priest for a time. Mm-hmm. I would love to ask you a little bit about John O'Donohue and and your your thoughts about him because I know you you reference him in the book a few times. You actually quote him towards the end in a beautiful poem. Um, he's someone that is ever present with me. Um, mm-hmm. He's not someone I ever got to meet, um, but I feel like I know him. Um, mm-hmm. I have family members that got to meet him. We're very fortunate that got to meet him over the years, but. What, I, I would love to just hear your your perspective as as someone who was a man of the cloth, um, and and John O'Donohue was a man of the cloth as well. But he stepped away. Um, you stepped away for for your own reasons. Um, a lot has changed with faith and the church, um, Ireland, um, everything. Would just love to to hear your your thoughts about John O'Donohue and and maybe even a little bit of your own path. Um, mm-hmm because it's formed who you are. We're both men of faith. We're both Irish Roman Catholic uh, descendants, I guess. Um, But we also carry our own unique pathway and um, our own burdens in this. Yeah. You know, um, so, you know, for me, so um, coming out of Northern Ireland and kind of wondering, you know, what will I do in my life? Um, My mother was a great woman of faith and so I, there was a comfort in having the ritual, you know, what, what faith for me, when I reflect upon it, it was ritual. Mm-hmm. And so often what's missing in people's lives today is ritual yeah. and the power of ritual. So the Catholic church provided for me a, a ritual, you know, Wednesday evening, we went for the novena mm-hmm. there, no matter what the chaos was outside, when I entered that church, there was something predictable. There was something that was warm, that was soothing. There was hope. And so, um, so for me, as I try to respond, you know, there wasn't in my heart a desire to respond to this. Mm-hmm. And, and I think I've always wanted in some way to be a healer. Yeah. And, um, and so for me, priesthood was the way to do that. Mm-hmm. And I think initially, um, that's why I went into priesthood. And, um, and I saw, uh, you know, in many ways, the Catholic Church in Northern Ireland was very different to in Southern Ireland, believe it I or imagine. not. Yeah. And, you know, really, it was, it was this, this, this refuge, you know? And, um, and uh, I, uh, I kind of went to seminary, left seminary, but I ended up in Florida. Um, I went to a seminary in, in Ireland where... Um, everyone who went there was founded in 1842 during the famine. So it was specifically mm-hmm. founded to send priests who were Irish fleeing the, the famine went. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, there was an image of my view of priesthood. It, it's, it goes back to the book, it's the innkeeper. Yeah. So here we have the weary travelers who come to the inn for some respite. 
And, you know, as a priest, that's what it was. I, I was a pit stop in people's weekly journey. Mm -hmm. And the challenge was in some way to feed them. And that was my role. For me, that was the core of what priesthood was. And, um, and I think that's helpful because it separated spirituality from religion. <laughs> That's and really so, powerful. Yeah. That yeah. You say that. So for me, you know, that's the image that this, 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 I'm here to offer hospitality and food and food in words and, and deeds. And I think why John O'Donohue is so impactful for me is that he is that and then elevated. He's also a mystic. Yeah. And, and a mystic for me is someone who can see reality and with different eyes that expand us that we just so so when i read a poem of his it's like he's giving me new glasses to just to explore and discover um the normal things of life but with an expanded vision both inside and out and um you know i had, I had the honor of meeting him once or twice and and um and, what was and that like wow and it is, it's, it's like, it's like any, it's like, it's like meeting the Dalai Lama. It's like meeting people whose sheer presence just catches you instantly. And you know that you're in, you're, you know that you're on different ground. <laughs> mm -hmm. And, uh, and for me, he did that. For me, he was, he, he, he was this mystical, spiritual presence. And, you know, in Ireland, you know, we, what's wonderful is that, we do have this Celtic heritage. We we have a yeah. deep spirituality which precedes, you know, religion precedes the the, the structure of faith, etc. And and it's deep in the Irish psyche and soul. And um, and I think that's what he does well. He 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 reaches there and he brings people to there because um, there is a hunger and within us. And and I think today in this day and age. Um, it's that type of authenticity that can feed the hunger and nothing else. Yeah. I, I think it's interesting that you talk about that hunger and the awakening that I think mm. happens um, unexpectedly from mm. many people that read John O'Donohue. And, and I think the, the other fascinating thing that in his, in his journey, I always felt, like you said, a mystic and sort of this, um, person that was more connected to the the land and the mm -hmm. ritual that goes that precedes long before any sort of occupational mm -hmm. um religion set set foot on the land and i always felt to myself in reading his stuff early on um there's no cathedral that could hold this man mm. like there's just there's just no edifice that can 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 hold what he and i think in some ways that is um awakening and in other ways it's threatening yeah um and that's the fascinating thing about faith for me is that the minute that i think um i've listened to it all or figured it all out something else comes up right mm -hmm. and it reignites a different kind of hunger yeah and it causes us to search and yeah. wander. Yeah. And some of that searching and wandering, I think, takes us to places where, <laughs> frankly, an authority, and I put in quotes, might say, don't go there. I do yeah. not approve. 
yeah. um, begin begin the shaming, right? Begin yeah. the naming, begin the shaming. And um, there's so much more beyond that. Um, and I and I find it really interesting how much when someone, like you said, the expansiveness, right? You put on new glasses, you see the world in a new way. I think that's generative experience. I hope we get to a place in the world where your generative experience does not equate to somebody's lessening. Yeah. Somebody's yep. shrinking. Yeah. Somebody oh, feeling threatened. That. Yeah. That's so beautiful. I love that. You know, in many ways, you know, it, it, you kind of bring me back to kind of the core reason for leaving priesthood mm. was I like to say, you know, um, the church didn't change. She rarely does. I did. Yeah. And the confined, the box I was in was too limiting. Mm-hmm. And so I needed to leave and uh, uh, talk about authority figures saying, no, you shouldn't. What are you doing? And, um, you know, it was, the, I think, the most difficult decision of my life. And, and yet, oh, there was such an impulse from within that I knew I had to. There, there was such terror and certainty, you know, um, that if I did not do this, I would lessen my presence, that it would impact me. And, um, yeah, so it, it's, it's, and it was that invitation to, mm-hmm. to what are many Irish, well, you know, what we do in Ireland a lot, we leave, you know, we go to all these different places and in our history. And leaving, yeah. Leaving is part of what we do. It's in our DNA and the Irish uh, goodbye. That's what we do. <laughs> yeah, we do. And, uh, and this was just another leaving, you know, right. For I think it's, land. I think it's so it's great that you name it the Irish leaving the power of leaving. We know how to do it. And I think the other piece that you said, which is so powerful to me is the sense of terror and certainty mm. or being terrified and certain at the same yeah. time. Like those two things can coexist at the same time. And I yeah. actually think in those moments is where we experience the most growth, right? Mm. Your father, right? Standing yeah. right there. Yeah. He was terrified, mm. literally gripping his family in his arms, watching everything he'd built burn you talked to you know previously in in an interview felt the heat on your face as a six-year-old right terror and certainty he also had the certainty we're going to go on um you had the certainty i'm going to go on i'm going to continue to be a healer i'm going to continue to open my arms to people that are on a pathway that are on a journey help them in other ways in ways that i don't feel bound Mm. and 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 restricted by um you know, when you think about one of the things you talk about, the power of third places, the third place. Mm-hmm. You mentioned this in the book. You talk about mm-hmm. the power of a pub being a third place. Mm-hmm. I think we've lost a lot of our third places in this yeah. current pandemic. Yeah. Um, how is that the power of a third place? What What is that for you now? Um, and when you, you're you're a man who's traveled the world, you're a man who's literally been behind the bar, in front of the bar, behind the altar, in front of the altar, <laughs> um, you know, typing the book, publishing the book, right? You've been on many sides. And to me, there's a magic in that. What does third place mean to you now? Um, such a fascinating question. Um, so I think, you know, third place, especially coming out of the pandemic, is something that has become more mobile Hmm. and it is something so still you know the research on third place was still attached to a place a physical place 
It was the pub, the barber, the bowling Starbucks. alley. Starbucks. Yeah. <laughs> and um, what's interesting out of the pandemic is we had to recreate community. And sometimes it worked. Sometimes it didn't. A lot of times mm -hmm. it didn't. And the times that it worked, it's interesting. I know for me that the qualities of what made a third place, a third place were there. Um, I felt at home. Mm -hmm. There was a peace. Um, I felt that I was in a conversation with people who I might not have known a long time, but I felt I did. Mm -hmm. um, there, the, the, the conversation was, was, it was, it was playful. You know, yeah. there was a playfulness about it. Um, and, um, and I think like all, all third place, it was, it was a leavening conversation there, you know, hierarchy was not there. Mm -hmm. Um, there was a, a willingness to explore and to be joyful in the difference that we all brought, but knowing that there was an equality there. And I think that's at the core of what a third place is. Yeah. And it, it's, it's, it's innately a space of curiosity. Oh, totally. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And, and innately as well, a place where at its best, we don't feel that we have to be uh, someone we're not. The, the, the pressure to turn up as someone we feel we have to be is, is the, now we may well do that, but there's no pressure there to do that. Um, you know, I, I say, I mentioned in the book, you know, about kind of the warts and all, where, where it's mm -hmm. okay. You mm -hmm. don't have to be these perfect people. And I think, you know, third places can do that. There are places where we have these vulnerable conversations. Right. And, and there's all, also a piece, I think, of unexpected wisdom that mm. comes in them. Mm. Um, and I know from unexpected sources, Bill, at times. Right. Well. <laughs> yes. Yeah. From very unexpected sources. Yes. Yes. Um, you know, I think when you talk about the barber, the barkeep, the bandolier, right? Like yeah. these are these are these are caretakers of souls. Yes. And some might equate it to the other church work, yeah. right? I mean, I think I think back to when we were in Orin Moore in the early '90s. I think that I, I'm pretty sure there was a uh, maybe it was a World Cup going on. I can't remember. I just remember that, that somebody was playing. And in very typical small Irish town fashion, the church is sort of the epicenter. And then around all sides of that are different bars and different shops. And one of my favorite moments was um, it was mass and they basically accelerated mass. I think I think <laughs> the priest said at the front of the altar, here's your communion. Take it to go. And. The first time ever in my life did I see the entire town go up, get their communion, and proceed to walk right out the door and straight to the pub. Uh, now, that probably happens more often than people realize, but I remember mm -hmm. as a teenage boy thinking, oh my God, the world's spin off, spun off its axis. Here's your communion. Take it to go. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but it reminds me that equal healing, equal mm -hmm. faith, Right, mm -hmm. equal soul caring was going to happen. Yeah, ten feet down the road, Absolutely. in this pub that probably couldn't hold all those people, but we spilled out into the streets, and there were celebrations, and there was laughter, and there was, and I think about those moments of 
you know, the story of your mom, right? The miscarriage. I think about how in those moments, there's so many things that people can't talk about. Mm. There's the unspoken, the unsaid, mm -hmm. the weight we carry, the crosses we carry. Mm -hmm. But to be able to go into a third place, a pub, mm -hmm. um, and just put it down, just put it mm -hmm. down for a while. Yeah. Like here's yeah. a place you can put your woes down. Yeah. And nobody's going to judge you. Yeah. There's such beauty in that. And, mm -hmm. and I know it's really hard for people these days because we don't have that. Yeah. You know, we, we've got this, this in-between space. I was just reading about how he, out here in Seattle, you know, they're now getting to a place where they're going to require people to have, you know, something and you've got to scan in and it's becoming, yes, there's safety measures in, in place, but I wonder what's going to happen to that, um, the flesh of that, that experience. Um, it seems like it's going to be a lot harder to go to a place, put stuff down, put your woes down when you've got to worry as you said right i think you said this in another interview like our human connection is what keeps us alive and our yeah. human connection during a pandemic is what's putting us at risk yeah the mind cannot process that no no yeah it's <clears throat> you know in many ways um it's i was at a conference in vegas uh, a few months ago in person and I'm just an observer of humanity in general mm -hmm. and watching people making connection was fascinating. You know, we, it's almost relearning. Yeah. And then we have to almost give people permission. Like, is it okay if I touch you? Is it okay if I hug you? Is it okay? You know, and so these, these social negotiations that we're going into that we've never had to before. And yet, yet, oh, what gives me hope? is that there is there is this this you know and 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 yes we want to be safe and yes we want to be respectful but there is this 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 almost um this power within us to connect mm -hmm. that after a day people couldn't but help yeah you know and that gave me hope because at times i think oh my god is this like is this going to this this is pretty serious stuff and then i just like wow but no as human beings um this is where we derive meaning this is mm -hmm. this is our fuel um because without this we're not fully human and um and so the pandemic will pass and mm -hmm. it will take a little bit to relearn the social conventions of what we do but it'll roar back again. I just know it because that's who we are. Yeah. That's our enduring ember. Yeah. Like oh, it's yeah. just, it's just yeah. never going to go out. It, yeah. it will, it will, it will cinder, right? You will have a little bit of that. It'll be at the base of the oven or the, or the yeah. fire, but it will never go out. Um, yeah. And I think at times it's really important to hear people like yourself and others who have the opportunity to interact, to advise, to coach people, to say that is our eternal ember. Yeah. Um, we will, we will find, we will find a way. Um, yeah. and I think, I think it's important that that gives people, um, a little bit of hope. I'd love to talk about the thin places, mm -hmm. uh, as we kind of start to, to wind or I could, I could talk to you for hours. It just struck me out. I, I do want to say one, this little yeah, uh, addendum to that conversation. So I was doing a retreat about two months ago, virtual, mm. um, beautiful. It was a retreat off, um, um, diverse individuals uh, organized by united way and it brought together people of color um, people from the lgbtq community and they were training 
um, younger professionals to be board members, mm. which is beautiful. It's such a great mission. But we were talking about the pandemic and it just got so emotional, the weight of it. And there was one young individual who said, um, you know, uh, I thought the experience for me was I thought the silence and being alone was going to destroy me. Mm-hmm. But I learned that I could be alone and with others as well. Yeah. And, um, and I think, you know, part of, part of that, ironically, you know, we've been talking about the amber of connection, but then I hopefully maybe coming out of this as well is our, the beauty of being alone and what the silence brings as well. And, and, and that, balance of what we what we need we need alone and we need each other Mm -hmm. and it struck me that hope you know i think for many people uh, their experience of that has been very different but um but i think it's it's led them to a deeper questioning as well absolutely i i know my own my own journey in sort of the companionship with uh solitude is what I would call it, Um, began before the pandemic. Uh, My husband actually was in the Peace Corps for two years Mm. prior to, like he came home 2019, but um, prior to the pandemic. And that was really my introduction to the discernment between being alone and loneliness, Mm. between solitude and isolation. Um, And I'm so grateful for that space and that time, but I will absolutely agree it is pretty terrifying. Um, yeah. and I can understand that young person's sense of sense of dread. Yeah. Um, but it's also been some of the most powerful work I've ever done. Yeah. Um, and I'm so grateful for it. I'm grateful that I have a spouse who pursued a dream, um, later on in life to go into the Peace Corps, to go help people in Ukraine. Um, I'm I'm honored to have been able to to support that from afar and near, you know, having visited four times. And I am most grateful for all the things I learned about myself in the silence. Yeah. In taking the walks. And I did a lot of these things at the time. I didn't know how important they were, but I used to do something called Silent Saturday, where mm. and I know you'll appreciate this because in our in our and our lines of work probably very similar. We talk for a living, right? We, we facilitate, we talk, we coach. We, there are days I'm like, I am done talking. Mm, yeah. And every month or every other month at one point, I would not speak for 24 hours. Yeah. And people say, how do you do that? How do you, how do you go through the world? Um, and this is pre-pandemic, right? And I learned a lot. I learned about, a lot about myself. I learned a lot about the world. I learned you can actually go through life without saying a single word, Mm. because you can communicate in other ways. You can go to Starbucks and order your stuff beforehand. You walk in and pick it up. You know, if somebody asks you directions, you can just, you know, type on your phone or show it to them. Now, obviously, in my case, if somebody was in an emergency or needed something, I would I would break that vow of silence. No problem, because it wasn't really, you know, stern. But in those moments, um, the things that came up in me, Irvin, were so evocative and um, informative. And it's only because I chose to turn down, as you said before, all the things we think we should be saying, 
all the things we anticipate in our mind. You know, it's Friday evening and already we're thinking about what we're going to say on Monday morning. Hang on a second. Like, mm-hmm. How about you give yourself the two days you've earned to just be still and quiet? And so for me, I do think there's a lot of this coming up in people. I'm very fortunate to have been able to almost probably get a rehearsal of it before the pandemic kicked in. And very much, I think, in my own soul and in my own being, there's a very quiet poet who's been there for a really long time, um, yeah. but never really had the opportunity to to yeah. show up as such. Mm-hmm. Um, and now I'm showing up as such. Mm-hmm. And wonderful things are happening. And I'm terrified mm-hmm. at the same time. Yeah. So that kind of brings me to the thin places because it's yeah. a little bit like a thin place. Um, yeah. There's a term I'm very familiar with. Um, I love this term. Um, there's an Irish Gaelic term that you that you uh, have in the book for it as well, which I won't try to pronounce. Um, but I'd love for you to expand on the topic because as we're in the world we're in, I think more people are starting to understand what the thin places are because we're, mm-hmm. we're spending more time there right between um the land of the living and the land of the past the land of who we were to who we're mm-hmm. supposed to be we're we're at this really interesting chasm and the thin places um i think is uniquely an irish yep. term and concept so i'd yep. love for you to kind of uh expand on that a little bit and then um, I think you and I share one of the thin places in the world that is the same. We might share more, but I'd, I'd love okay. to just start with kind of you explaining yeah. it and then we'll go from there. So, yeah, it, it's uh, um, the thin place is is a, a translated term from from the Gaelic Keolaich, um, which uh, means thin place. And it's it's um, uniquely from Celtic spirituality. And the Celts believed that there were places, physical places that had a profound impact on people. That when you were in these spaces, that one felt different. And the way they explained it was that the veil between heaven and earth was thin. That unlike in other places, um, there was a, a possibility of connecting with the divine in a way that was easier than in other places. And so they revered these places and in ireland there's there's quite a few of them but the one that i initially that i was drawn to and um still am and i still go on pilgrimage there every time is is a place called glendalock mm-hmm. which is in the dublin mountains uh, about um, an hour from dublin it's actually the earliest site of irish monasticism um, and there is you go there and it's interesting what happens that time takes on a different dimension that you know we've just had this conversation about being silent but it's easier there it's almost you want to be silent it 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 draws you in um and seduces you into into being silent and to to listen and time is not as important and there is a warmth in your heart that you feel and when you're present in there, um, all of a sudden things begin to arrive from in, within you. And you, you say, where did that come from? Maybe a thought, it may be an idea, a memory. And, and it starts, you know, and, and, and I get chills up and down my, my back at times. 
So, you know, this is this idea and, and it, there are other places. And I think, you know, um, I think we all have those places. I think uh, everyone, and, and they don't necessarily have to be in, in an Irish side of monasticism. Uh, it can be, you know, one of the ones for DC for me is the Korean War Memorial. Mm -hmm. There's something about that memorial for me when I go there, especially at twilight in the evening, that draws me in and I enter a different place, a different mode of being. And, um, and then for me, you know, in the book, I sort of think, well, well, what if we were thin places for each other? Yeah. What if we just by our presence could draw people in so that the way they felt, um, was different. And so I, I kind of wanted to explore that, you know, what did that mean? How, how could we in this crazy world that we're in, you know, how could we make time for that? How could we um, help people um, bring from within them different thoughts, different ideas, mm -hmm. possibilities? Um, how could we help them focus in a different way? And, and I think kind of that's, that's, and I think we can, and I, and I think it's a beautiful image to be, you know, a thin place for someone. And it's a beautiful image. I think of leadership, you know, what leaders do at their best. So often we are, um, we're fixed, fixated on leaders doing, mm -hmm. and, and this is, this is all about leaders being, right. and, um, and I think it's very beautiful. Yeah. I also share the Korean war memorial mm -hmm. as a thin place. Um, Obviously, as a veteran, um, sure, yeah. I visit that memorial, and it's really interesting. You talk about, you know, there's a. To me, I will I will stand or stare among that on a really rainy, cold day, mm. and the light bends in a way that doesn't make sense, and it feels for moments as if there's the slightest movement from one of those soldiers. And as a signal officer, I always relate to the one soldier who has the radio pack on mm -hmm. his back, and you can sort of mm -hmm. see the antenna. And I have a communication with this, with this mm -hmm. representation of what that loss and pain and fear was. And it's, it's inexplicable, right? Um, have I been on the Korean Peninsula? Yes. But um, and, and so maybe there's some of that there, but I think it's, it's, it's a different kind of haunting, um, mm. that is that connection. One of the other places, uh, is the Burren in the West of Ireland. Mm. Um, and it, as you said, there's just a part of you that almost otherwise seems offline until you are there, until you are standing on those rocks, um, and you experience the enormity of, of the universe and you experience the um, delicacy of, of the human spirit all, all at once. Um, yeah. And so I, I agree that there's, there's I, I love that you tie it back to who we are as individuals, who we are as leaders. Can we be those thin places? Can we be those portals that create an opportunity for the most mysterious and mystical and unmeasured part of a person to come come through. Yeah. Um, you know, I think to, I think about some great leaders and I read a quote, you know, recently from Satya Nadella, the CEO of Microsoft, and he, 
he basically said that the role of leaders is to create and keep the continuity of connection. Yeah. Create yeah. and keep the continuity of connection. I mean, yeah. that is what we're describing in, yeah. the, in the thin places, being sure. the living, breathing, walking holder of, of thin places um, as we go forward. Um, I, I so appreciate you stepping through that explanation and hopefully leaving listeners like a little more attuned because I, I think we walk through these all the time. Mm. We interact with people all the time. And so maybe next time that happens with someone and they, they experience that sort of mysterious part of it, maybe don't rush past it. Yeah. Maybe hold the eye contact with that person a few seconds longer as you, yeah. and, and see, see what comes of it. Um, I really appreciate the time you've given. I know you wrote in your book one line, which was, how do you spell love? And it was T-I-M-E. And mm -hmm. so I so appreciate your time, mm -hmm. Irvin. I know you're a very busy man. Um, I really love what you're doing in this world. Um, this book, as I said, was uh, a salve um, on, on my heart. Um, I'm very excited to, to tell people to read it. It's very practical. It's a story that has practicality to it. Um, I know there are many people that um, it will speak to equally as powerful. Um, and if there's anything I can do to keep keep keeping this on and help you, um, obviously, please reach out as a fellow Hoya, uh, as a fellow leader, um, as someone who's just you know following following his passion. I really appreciate it. Well, Bill, thank you so much. This is uh, I've oh wow, I've just so enjoyed this uh, conversation. Um, you know, I just think in there are many ways we we kind of created a little thin place between us. And uh, it's been a beautiful, rich um, conversation, and I'm leaving. Um, I'm leaving. My heart is is full. So thank you for that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's a it's a wonderful measure in this world, and so mm. I hope you have a wonderful weekend. Um, I know for me, um, this weekend's pretty powerful as well. It's the 10, 10th anniversary of the um, end of Don't Ask, Don't Tell. And so mm. there's a series of uh, reflection that I'll be doing as a as someone who is a veteran and served under that and experienced new levels of of kind of freedom, um, but still but still kind of navigating that that own part of the story um, as an LGBT leader. Um, so yeah, I'm I'm really also glad to go into this weekend full hearted and really appreciate the time together. Um, I'm honored to echo your story. Thank you so much. I appreciate it.